long story short, I got the message that what I needed to do was just write a novel and just base the novel on several uh, incidents that, that I had experienced to help me kind of put a story together, but then to just take it off into my own direction. Fiction is not fake news, as long as you're honest about what you're doing. Sometimes writing a novel based on fact may be the best way to get readers interested in the story you're trying to tell. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Robert Delaney is an award-winning author who's covered financial news in China for the Dow Jones Newswires and Bloomberg News. Currently, he's the U.S. Bureau Chief for the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Thank you, Michael. So to start off with, tell me about your journalist journey. What got you interested in journalism and how did you end up in China? My entry into journalism just came about because when I was going to university many, many, many years ago, I just sort of wound up in the School of Communications and just thought, well, sure, journalism, that's fine. Mostly because I just didn't have too much of an aptitude for math or science. So I thought, what the hell? Then fast forward a couple of years, I didn't, I wound up going into a different sequence in uh, journalism school at Temple University in Philadelphia. I wound up as a journalist because I found myself in China. And after I had studied there, studied the language for a couple of years, I was just looking for options because I thought I might want to stay there. And there was an offer at the time, Dow Jones was looking for uh, Mandarin-speaking Americans or foreigners who had journalism experience. I had gone to J school, so I thought it all would have worked. And so the question about what got me interested in China was just uh, mostly because when I was in university, I was taking uh, Kung Fu classes for quite a few years. And that led me to the decision to do an independent study when I was in school. And the independent study was all about martial arts in America. And so my independent study advisor asked me to make sure that I understood the foundations and the the philosophical underpinnings of Kung Fu, which sort of took me to China. And so that's when I just started learning about the country, learning about the just the background of Kung Fu, which was is sort of tied in with Chinese history. So that's what got me interested in the country. And then I never really had any at the time, I, I wasn't expecting that I would go to China, but eventually the, the grandmaster at the studio where I was studying Kung Fu suggested that, asked me if I was interested in going. I said, I, the thought just sort of hit me like a, like a rock. And I thought, yeah, why didn't I think of this before? So that's how I ended up in China. So I'll tell you, we've, we've done over 320 podcasts and you're the first person who got to journalism through martial arts, <laughs> I think, and got to China first. And then sort of became a journalist out of it. How long have you been at China in China? So I first went to China in 1992, and that was to start. Uh, that was just after finishing uh, university, and that was just to study Mandarin Chinese. And so I spent my first year there, just in this sort of third-tier city where there weren't any other English language speakers except for missionaries, and I wasn't really keen on hanging out with missionaries. So, so that was, that, that, that's how I got there. So you're in China, you're learning how to speak Mandarin then through this sort of happenstance that you had had studied journalism and there, there was this possibility of you going into a job there. You, you suddenly become a, a journalist in China. Tell me about that experience. What was, I mean, what was that like? 
it was uh, it was daunting at first. I I hadn't really worked properly as a professional journalist before, and I also didn't really understand finance or markets very well either. But somehow, I don't. I'm really not sure how I ended up with a job at uh, Dow Jones Newswires. Of course, that's uh, just, that's primarily financial news. So they sent me to Singapore to to learn how to cover rubber markets in Southeast Asia. And so I learned all the terminology. I learned to talk to traders and ask them what's going on in the markets. And after six months of that, they shipped me back to China. And it was very odd because I was covering an aspect of Chinese markets that people weren't covering before. I was covering futures markets. I mean, in in a way, it was kind of bewildering because it just wasn't my natural, uh, comfortable place to be writing about finance or futures markets. But then... I guess one of the things that made it easy was that no one was really covering these markets. No one else in China was covering these markets for for a Western audience, or I don't even know if, if it was even a specialized audience in China for looking for this. So, so on the one hand, it was odd for me to be covering something that I didn't naturally take and uh, wasn't inclined to look at closely. But on the other hand, because there was so much interest we're getting into the mid 90s now, right? So that's when China's economy started to really take off. And I think there was there was so much demand for knowing what was going on in China's markets and where were the opportunities to invest that whatever I was writing just seemed to do okay, I guess. That That's kind of interesting, the sort of the happenstance of it. I mean, by the time you had the job, did you feel that you were fairly uh, proficient in Mandarin? No, <laughs> I didn't. So I had this standard procedure where I would talk to a trader and he would kind of blather on or he or she would blather on. And I, I shouldn't say it that way. They were actually they were making a lot of sense. It's just that my Mandarin wasn't very good. So usually after about five or 10 minutes, I would say in Chinese. So how would you sum that up if, you know, just in sort of very simple terminology, how would you kind of sum that up? And I ended up using that so often in my interviews that that got me through my first year, I guess. And of course, in the course of that first year, after listening to so many explanations about what's going on in the market, my Mandarin, my listening ability improved a lot. So that helped me out. So how how long were you covering the Chinese markets for Dow Jones? I was covering them for about two years. I was based in uh, Shenzhen, which is a city that's right over the border. It's a mainland Chinese city right, right over the border from Hong Kong. At the time, it was a bit of a frontier. It was a city that China just decided that they were going to build up very quickly just to show that they could have a big city too right over the border from Hong Kong. So yeah, I was there for two years. It was a very odd place. I wasn't happy there. Everyone in the city was either doing some sort of corrupt kind of business or there were I was living in a building where there were everyone living there were they were the mistresses of the Hong Kong taxi drivers and it it just felt like a really <laughs> odd place to live it was it wasn't really possible to have any kind of normal social life so I, I did eventually get out I, I then moved to to Hong Kong do you consider yourself a journalist did you think of yourself as sort of that even though I mean that was your job this is something that you kind of I don't want to say fallen into, but it, you know, by circumstances, you ended up taking this path. Is that how you saw yourself? Yeah, that's exactly right. I didn't really see myself as a journalist. I, I, I saw myself more as someone who was kind of playing the part of a journalist. And because it was sort of my first job, I thought this is, this is, this is what I need to do. So I need to sort of 
put myself in the mindset of a journalist. What, what would a journalist think in this situation? What questions would a journalist ask? It took me a while to to kind of fall into the understanding that, yes, I, I was, in fact, a journalist. And even though I'm covering odd things that you wouldn't normally think of if you're thinking of someone becoming a journalist, they gradually realized that it was, in fact, the work of a journalist. That's interesting. And, you know, how did you I mean, what was it that sort of gave you that realization? I guess it was when I moved to Hong Kong then, and I was only in Hong Kong for a brief period. I, I ended up going back to China a couple of times, but I think it was because when I was in Shenzhen, it's, of course, in the mid nineties, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. It's not like I could watch CNN. It's not like I could pick up a copy of Time Magazine. I just felt like I was very remote from everything. So it wasn't until I got to Hong Kong that I saw that there's actually a whole lot of interest in in what's going on in China and and futures markets and commodities markets are actually they may seem obscure but they're they're a piece of this big puzzle about the the piece of the big economic puzzle about this growth this tremendous growth in China and this growth in China is having a lot of influence and impacts on things that are going on elsewhere in the world and and that's where it sort of clicked for me that oh okay then I am what, what I'm doing covering these markets is does actually have some kind of journalistic value. Okay. And so, so how, where was the transition over to Bloomberg? I moved to Bloomberg because at the time, so jumping ahead a couple of years, I, I wound up in Shanghai and I was with another news wire service called Bridge News, which sort of scaled up very quickly. They thought they were going to put Bloomberg out of business and that didn't actually happen. And I, when I was in Shanghai working for this uh, news company, I, I got the sense that things weren't going well. So, uh, and also I was, I was with someone at the time. I was in a long distance relationship. That other person was in Jakarta. I asked uh, Bloomberg, I just contacted Bloomberg and said, can I work in your Jakarta bureau? They gave me a test. We had a couple of interviews and next thing I knew I was in Jakarta. And uh, after a couple of years in Jakarta covering just markets there and the economy, they asked me to move back to China. So I, then I wound up in Beijing with Bloomberg. Okay. And, you know, by this point in your career, you, you felt like you were pretty you sort of handle on uh, the financial reporting. To this day, I still <laughs> feel like I have a great handle on financial reporting. I mean, I don't know. I don't mean to shortchange myself, but I just Maybe if, if I have any value as a journalist covering financial markets, it's maybe it's because I always feel like I don't fully understand what's going on in them. And so maybe that forces me to ask a lot more questions than, than I should. And, and maybe that helps me do what I do a, a little bit better than maybe I think I, I, I do. Yeah, you shouldn't beat your up, you beat yourself up about that because I know plenty of journalists who are sort of in the same sort of position. They're covering government or there's something covering something that's very complex and they don't understand all the nuances of it. So you end up just asking lots of questions until you can understand it and then right. and then put it in words that other people can can figure out what it's about. Now, you collected your memoirs of of being in China in a book Route 1 to China. You know, tell me about that. What, yeah. what was that about? So actually Route 1 to China is is just a collection of of memoirs that was put into a chapbook uh, that was published by uh, Random House Canada. This is so this is after I finally left Beijing. I was living in Canada. I was taking courses at University of Toronto continuing studies because I was intending to write a book 
the intention was to write a book that was about the disappearance of a friend of mine while I was living in Beijing. This friend was a documentary filmmaker. He went missing because the government didn't like what he was doing his film about. Anyway, eventually when all of that, when that whole situation resolved itself, I was living in Canada. I decided I wanted to write a book. I started writing a couple of chapters and then I took it to a mentor. A friend of mine put me in touch with a Canadian author named Wayson Choi, a Canadian Chinese author who wrote a very good book called The Jade Peony. Wayson read a couple, read one chapter that I gave him and he said it was terrible. <laughs> and he said, you're trying to write a novel like a news story and it just doesn't work that way. So he recommended that I take this course in memoir writing at University of Toronto and I said, I don't want to write a memoir. I want to I want to write more about this other situation about someone else. And he said, if you really want to create connections with your reader in the form of a novel or a long, a long form piece like that, you need to learn how to sort of sort through your own feelings. You need to sort to sort of, as he said, jump off a cliff. So I was in this course and I was writing several short stories about not only when I was in China, but when I was younger, before I went to China. And at the time, Penguin Random House had a competition for all of the students at University of Toronto, all the writing students. We could submit our work. Uh, I submitted mine. Um, I didn't win it. I got first runner-up for it. But they took the first three, the, the winner, the first runner-up, second runner-up, and they put it together into a chapbook. And so my contribution to that book is Route 1 to China. Let me go back to that. Uh, what that writer told you. Do you think that he was right when you when you took this memoir writing class? Did you feel that it kind of changed your writing? Absolutely. I mean, he gave me great advice. He pointed out that the way you approach writing something that's going to be three or four hundred pages is, has to be very different from how you approach a news story that's going to be five hundred, six hundred words. You have to create a connection with who it is you with your potential readers. You have to get into feelings. You have to explore the way, uh, the, the reason that a character is, is feeling a certain way. You have to explain why it is that the color of, a, of the room that he's in or she is in is, is dredging up some sort of memory. Just things like that, which as a journalist, I never, I, I never really got that involved in writing. So he just pointed out that a lot of things have to be unpacked if you ever expect to to write something of any length, like something that's a, a novel length. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I had the experience a couple of years ago. I, I ended up writing a, a textbook, and my original approach for it was like, you know, I'm, oh, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer. You know, this is a nonfiction book. I can just, you know, I just interview a bunch of people, and I'll just start putting it all together. And very quickly, as I was assembling all the pieces, I realized, man, I need to get some sort of handle on this in a way to present it. I can't just like you know, go from step one and go to step 100. I have to figure out how I'm going to go on the journey and how I'm going to bring the reader on the journey. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly the, the process that I went through. And when I was taking those classes in, in memoir, it was helpful. My, my instructor was very helpful in pointing out in some of my submissions, it was, they did okay. But others, it was just, you know, I, it left the, the instructor and the other students kind of scratching their heads like why do we care about this is this why is this character interesting or what why are they there or why why are they disturbed by whatever it is they're they're confronting and then and then it was a great way to, to help me understand that I had to I was in my own head too much I made too many assumptions about 
what a reader would take out of what I'm writing. Huh. That's interesting. I never even thought of it that way. So, you know, one of the reasons we're talking today is that you've got this novel coming out in October. Was that sort of the novel that you were thinking about writing about before you went into the memoir class? Yes, it is. However, I really intended to write a book that was just sort of a, a piece of creative nonfiction, a book that's creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. The courses and the, the mentor that I had helped me learn to, to, to write in a way that's more appropriate for something of that length. But the book did change because after getting feedback from people in the publishing industry, one of the things that I heard consistently was that it wasn't suspenseful enough. And I, my answer was always, well, I, I want to be truthful about what was happening. And the person who was detained by the government was ultimately released. So eventually, long story short, I got the message that what I needed to do was just write a novel and just base the novel on several uh, incidents that, that I had experienced to help me kind of put a story together, but then to just take it off into my own direction. And so, so that's why what initially was, was meant to be a, a book of creative nonfiction really just became a novel. So you could sort of tell the story, but, but in actu- actuality sort of presented in a way, in a format, is going to keep people intrigued from the beginning to the yeah, end. Exactly. That's how it ended up. And uh, I mean, I'm, ha- I'm happy it ended up that way. I'd like to think that it retains the characters that I experienced the situations that I went through or the situations that developed around this incident of this disappearance uh, in many ways are all very accurate, but then it's, it kind of veers off what actually happened and that it becomes a a little bit, I had to, to put together a story that would a be realistic, something that, that could actually happen given the, the world that I was living in, but at the same time was sort of exciting enough to engage an audience and make them want to keep turning the page. That's fascinating. Was the writing process really drastically different than your experience in the past of writing? It was because for so many years, I was whether I was with Dow Jones or especially at Bloomberg, working in places like that and working in journalism, you're constantly trying to make sure that you've got the details correct, you're verifying and for at Bloomberg, for example, we weren't even allowed to use adjectives unless we backed up the, the adjective with some kind of data set or, or, or something else. So in order to, to loosen the constraints, not only to loosen the constraints, but to just like break free of the constraints and just sort of run in the direction that I wanted to run, it took some time. It, it's almost like someone who's kind of been in jail for many, many years and then is released and you know, sometimes they're just, they feel like they'd they'd be more comfortable going back into their cell. I kind of had to get over that in order to write a a novel. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I've talked to people about writing, you know, being a a journalist and having to write. And, you know, I can whip up uh, any, you know, news story pretty quickly. You know, I know how to do that. I know how to assemble, you know, facts and present them pretty cleanly. But, you know, this idea of like making things up, (laughs) For lack of for yeah. lack of a better word, that seems so hard to me, you know, and so it sort of teeters on this this point where on the one hand you have all this information and these facts and perceptions and everything, and you you could you know fold them into a novel. It's like diving diving off a high board. You you just don't know 
you have certain expectations, but once you, you go into this other realm of, of fiction writing, to me, it just seems like it would be so different. On the one hand, you think, well, you're just putting words together, but it, but I guess it isn't the same. Yeah. So I had to sort of balance that once I learned to, to run on my own, I also had to make sure that I was always kind of reevaluating what I was writing just to think, would, would this character in this situation, is it possible that they could go to that extreme? I, I think I kept it realistic in, in the end. I'd, I'd like to think so anyway. Have you had the opportunity to go back the other way? Have you gone back to do any um, you know, nonfiction journalistic writing? It's pretty much my day-to-day job. I mean, my day job as as, bureau, as U.S. Bureau Chief at South China Morning Post is all about covering this trade war that we're in and covering this terrible the, – the U.S.-China relationship right now is, is incredibly strained. So I'm covering that as – I'm as nonfiction as you can possibly get with that just because I'm writing, writing or editing news stories every day about that. So yeah, my my day job is the world of straight up journalism. It's it's all nonfiction, but then to put this this book together, I kind of had to to spend my Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings in coffee shops and you know be be nowhere near a newsroom <laughs> or a television monitor. Well, I don't know. Considering what you're covering now, that sounds like the basis for a pretty good suspense novel. Uh, yeah, or an action movie of some sort. So. I want to ask you a couple of questions before we wrap up about your experience in being an international journalist. You know, what would you say to people who who say, you know, I'd like to go to another country. You know, I'm a journalist. I'd like to learn a different culture, report on news overseas. What, what advice would you give to someone? I would say the, the most important thing to do is just drop all of your your preconceptions that you have about wherever you're going. Because the reality is never, I just find it's very rarely what you expect. You know, in in the case of China, for example, it would be very easy for someone who hadn't lived there and wanted to go there as a journalist and cover the country to cover everything from the perspective of, okay, you've got this monolithic government that suppresses everyone's rights. And you could probably find lots of stories that would align with that viewpoint. But but you know certainly in china's case i would say you can find lots of examples where where that's not the case you can find interesting places where you're hearing very different viewpoints so yeah so i i think it's important to sort of how do you perceive the place you're going to and then just very consciously wrap that all up in a ball and just kind of throw it out the window and just show up is is probably the best thing to do so, I mean, aside from obviously having learned some Mandarin, do you feel that your interest in, you know, in Kung Fu and martial arts and, and Chinese culture helped you? It did in some ways and not in others. Certainly when, when, I, when I arrived in China in the early 90s, I had this, uh, this, the, these visions in my head of these misty hills with these wise men drinking tea on top of them, spouting off. Uh, idioms of of tremendous wisdom, and then that <laughs> wasn't the case at all. It was kind of this post-communist hell, at least the, the city that I was in. But after a few years, I eventually was was able to appreciate that there is a kind of a, a respect for authority in China. That when you say that to someone from the West, you think respect for authority. No, 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 you shouldn't. It shouldn't be like that. People in higher positions, whether it's family or government, need to earn your respect. Otherwise, they don't get any. And I started to appreciate the other side of that. The deference to authority does not always have to be a negative thing. And in some cases, it actually makes sense. 
And of course, when it comes to Kung Fu and the martial arts, deference is, is essential for that. So I kind of saw, eventually I did see how those ideas did apply and did exist in China, and they weren't always necessarily a bad thing. Now, I realized that I that I failed to mention the name of your book. Can you tell me the name of the book and uh, when it's coming out? Yes. So uh, the book is called The Wounded Muse, and it's available for uh, for pre-order now on Amazon. So if you looked uh, if you looked up Robert F. Delaney, The Wounded Muse, it would pop up. It's officially available on October 1st. But I'm doing a couple of launch events. The, the first launch event is actually in Toronto, Ben McNally Books on September 26th, if any of your listeners are out, uh, out there happen to be in Toronto. Cool. Well, um, Robert, thank you for coming in. I, I started reading the book. I, I, haven't, I haven't finished it. I'm really enjoying it, and I would encourage people to check it out. Thank you for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy provided our web content. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter helped with the website. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to find out more about our podcast? Go to itsalljournalism.com and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You'll receive weekly updates about upcoming episodes and special events that we've got in the works. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks again for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.